baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. We are creeping up now on just one year since recreational marijuana became legal in California. A momentous change after decades of prohibition, legalization was accompanied with great expectations, including the promise of fewer drug incarcerations, the eradication of an illicit black market, and the creation of a brand new stream of tax revenue from the legal market. But the legalization rollout has not been without its growing pains. I'm Keith Menconi, and for the next two weeks on In-Depth, we're going to be examining the first year of legal recreational marijuana in California, both the highs and the lows. Next week, we're going to be discussing some of the social consequences that legalization has had in the state. But this week, we're going to be focusing first on how the marijuana industry itself has been faring as it undergoes a huge transition. So to help us get a handle on the business of Bud, I spoke with David Downs. He is the California Bureau Chief for Leafly.com. That's a cannabis information website. Here is that conversation. David Downs, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Keith. So it's been quite a year. We're not quite at a year yet uh, since recreational marijuana was legalized in California, but we're getting pretty close. There's been many different narrative threads kind of unspooling as uh, this year unfolds. Obviously, uh, a lot of new business opportunities for those in the marijuana industry, but also uh, a lot of challenges, a lot of regulatory challenges, a lot of just practical challenges, and a lot of uh, you know, it's a pretty steep learning curve, I think, for everybody. And uh, I think one of the biggest threads that I'm most interested in uh, has been the the push to get away from a black market and to a legalized market and just everything that it takes to get there. So if you could just help our listeners kind of wrap their heads around what this year, uh, what we've seen so far this year and how that push has gone. Gosh, it is such a big question, and it's so multifaceted because on one side you have industry operators that have been around for decades, and they're facing the equivalent of their university thesis or final test, and a lot of them were woefully underprepared for this challenge. Um, and then you have a very, um, very vital black market that's been around for 80 years in California and remains pretty undaunted by the legal options that are available. We've had local cities and counties stand in the way of legalization's implementation here in California. So only 35% of cities and counties are allowing cannabis businesses to locate there legally. They still have a lot of illegal businesses in their neighborhoods that they are not dealing with. Um, and then you have the national picture that is simultaneously advancing cannabis law reform and pushing back on it. Yeah, so still a lot of question marks hanging in the air. Let's take this all piece by piece. And you brought up the political threat of it, which I'm very interested in, especially since we are just uh, a little bit out from the latest uh, election season, the midterm elections. Uh, so tell me a little bit about how the consequences of that election is uh, being felt in the industry. I know that there's a lot of new taxes that they're facing. That's right. Um, 
You know, I think overall industry looked at the 2018 midterm elections as advancing cannabis law reform and implementation, even with these taxes. We've seen that cannabis continues to be more popular than any party, any candidate, or any particular issue. Um, legalization polls at 66% in the United States. Medical polls in the 90s. You can't even get clean water to poll in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's very few things that span the... Um, you know, bipartisan aisle as well as this. We've seen a raft of new governors take uh, positions in state houses across America, from California, where we have Lieutenant Governor Newsom, all over to Illinois, where J.B. Pritzker won, all the way over to Maine, where Governor Republican Governor Paula Page is being replaced. Um, those positions stand to really advance the cause of decriminalization, legalization, or legalization's implementation in um, those states, where we have a whole new raft of representatives going to Congress that have already said they promised to unclog uh, the toilet that is Congress, so to speak, with regard to marijuana law reform. There's a number of bills that have been pending but haven't been able to get their hearing in the House, and new um, committee chairs are saying we're going to give those bills a hearing. Um, and yeah, we're ha we saw dozens and dozens of new taxes pass up and down California, similar mm -hmm. to, we, to the way we did in 2016 when legalization was on the ballot. And even in 2014, cities generally try to put the cart before the horse in terms of taxing things before they even allow them. But the good news is, is that experts are saying this actually gets cities skin in the game. The second they start talking about tax revenue, anticipated tax revenue, projecting tax revenue off local cannabis commerce, they're that much more comfortable with even allowing it in the first place, which still remains to be one of the bigger barriers here. Now let's talk about how the industry and California regulators have uh, been cooperating together. Uh, obviously, part of the growing pain of becoming a mature industry is also fitting into some regulatory framework and agreeing on the rules of the road. Uh, but this year, there have been a couple of bumps on that road, uh, to say the least. Uh, perhaps the most dramatic, and you can correct me if I'm maybe missing something, but one of the most dramatic would be uh, the regulation going online that uh, marijuana needs to meet certain testing guidelines. And uh, when that came out, we heard from a lot of uh, from a lot in the industry that they just had to get rid of a lot, you know millions of dollars of the product that they had on hand so that they could meet those guidelines. And uh, even even after the fact, uh, there was a lot of concern that there wasn't enough capacity to test all of the products that they wanted to sell. Uh, so certainly that was a big headache. Uh, but even zooming out from that even a little bit further, just in general. Uh, how has uh, California regulators and the industry been getting along this year? I got to say, it's been off to a rocky but pretty expected start. Um, we don't really have a template for taking a multi-billion dollar agricultural industry like cannabis and bringing it above board into legalization. Um, we can look at gaming in other states, but um, California really is trying to write its own rules. Um, and it's been um, extremely rocky. You got local implementation challenges. You have capital uh, access problems. They can't get into banks. Taxes are very high on cannabis businesses. They can't write off their federal um, deductions. Um, regulations have been extremely uh, new to this industry, but not new to the you know standard small business person in California. I think that's a big component of it, is you have um, business people who've never been exposed to the full weight of the modern administrative state, especially here in California, which can be quite a smothering blanket. And these, these uh, individuals didn't necessarily do their homework and weren't necessarily prepared to be dealing with an alphabet soup of regulatory agencies who were knocking at the door and sending them their letters, sending them letters saying, where's my, where's your permit application? Where's this? Where's that? This is an evolutionary filter that is culling um, 
I'd say maybe 80% of the operators who weren't prepared to start pulling paper and playing the compliance game. It's a profoundly different world than going into the woods and growing some pot and selling it on the black market. So you're saying the folks in the cannabis industry forgot to do their homework? Uh, a good chunk of them got into the industry to not do homework, <laughs> and so yeah, it's kind of the point, exactly. And um, you know, we are, we're facing these major equity issues in California: who gets to grow pot and sell it, and who gets to profit from it. And when you look at this equity game, the more and more rules and red tape you put in place, the more and more barriers of entry you create to the average person actually entering the industry. And we're creating this dynamic where you have to have an MBA, you have to have a pu public policy degree, you have to have experience working regulatory and legal channels and lobbyist channels just to even open up your corner store shop. And um, if you talk to someone who runs a laundromat or talk to a farmer, they're going to say, welcome to California in 2018. Right. Yeah. Other folks that are, are already familiar with that. Do you see uh, a maturing of the industry? I mean, are, are folks getting up to speed? A hundred percent. There are legacy actors, original players that saw the writing on the wall as far back as 2015 when the uh, California Supreme Court said, cities and counties don't have to tolerate any of this. you got to go to a place where you're wanted. So the clock started ticking years and years ago about getting into a locality where you could get a local license, which is a predicate to getting a state license. And and then you're off to the races. Most people are still digesting that reality, so they're running four years behind, three, four years behind. Um, some of their peers who said, I got to get to the right county, I got to get legal, I got to get on this road. Um, meanwhile, there's a bunch of new people who've showed up who bring in that regulatory acumen, who bring in capital and can start to turnkey these businesses on the other side of legalization, and they don't have as much um, history. And so, what does that mean? The more difficult the legal market is and the more cumbersome some of those taxes and regulations are, uh, the more expensive it is to do business legally, uh, I would assume the more attractive it is to stay in the black market. Is that more or less right? More or less. I think we have this inertia of the black market in California that's now 80 years old, multi-generational families of farmers, distribution networks and such, but it doesn't have much of a future. This inertia is slowly winding down. Kids who are people who are growing pot, they don't want their kids to do it. They want their kids to go to college and get a degree and learn how to code. Cannabis farmers are quitting right now. Um, the ones that are keeping going are seeing prices decline so fast that it's becoming unprofitable to even continue on the black market. Um, but that said, we need to be realistic. We've had commercial legal sales of, in, of cannabis in California for 11 months. We've had an illegal industry for 80 years. What is a reasonable time frame to unwind 80 years of cannabis prohibition? It certainly isn't 11 months. It might not even be five years. It might not even be 10 years. And it really rests upon the pace of change in other states that is buying California cannabis at this point and funding the black market here. Um, so I think I'm hats off to the voters for wanting to be like a light switch. And, but I do think there's a fair amount of people engaging in a sort of bad faith when they talk about how, why is there still a black market? Why is it still here? Um, when, when you look at the end of alcohol prohibition, how long it might take to wind down some of these markets. Is there anything in particular that could be done to smooth the process, uh, speed it along? Well, I've always joked that if you wanted to put the black market out of business, the federal government could start growing cannabis and selling it at like a buck a gram. 
and it could put everybody out of business. You only need about 10,000 acres of farmland to grow the, the America's supply of THC every year. Um, but we lack the political will to do something like that. Um, and what we're going to see is legalization advance in other states and continued states' rights solutions start to be promulgated in Congress. And all those things will have an effect of um, draining um, the impetus to grow cannabis in California's wildlands and try to ship it to places like Iowa or Illinois, which might have legalization, or Florida, which might soon have legalization. Those are all big factors. The, the number one macro factor is price. So um, cannabis is breaking the $500 a pound um, price on its way down. And farmers are telling me that's the number one thing that's driving people out of the black market. At the height of cannabis prohibition, you could get $5,000 a pound. That's a great job for someone who never went to, who didn't finish high school and certainly never went to college. Um, those days are gone and they're no, not likely to come back. That's going to continue to diminish the, the, the bigger scale black market. But what we have now is a pretty informal economy, too. It's harvest season in California. We can all grow six plants per property on a private residence or with a landlord permission. Uh, you can get a pound a plant. That's a year's supply of cannabis per person. So you, you, you yourself could grow six years supply of cannabis in a season in your yard. And we're going to end up, we've already ended up in a situation where the number one price people pay for cannabis is free. They're, the number one transaction is a gift. And um, I, I'm sure people listening right now are going to say, yep, I got some friends who are just handing out their harvest right now the way they used to hand out tomatoes or avocados. I got too much of these. I, they're going to rot. I can't do anything with them. That phenomenon is already here in cannabis, and it promises to increase. That promises to amplify the price decrease, and that promises to drain the black market. All right, so before we round out this conversation, I definitely need to ask you about the tax issue because there were huge expectations for revenue coming in after legalization, and it's been widely commented on, those expectations haven't quite been met. That's right. Uh, when we're talking about huge revenue, we're talking about a couple percentage points. Um, we're talking about a billion dollars for all of the state of California. It's the city of San Francisco alone has a $12 billion annual budget. I think those numbers are still very much within, re within reach. Um, it's going to take longer to get there because of local implementation. We've seen projections that were in the range of $600 million for year one on its way to a billion a year, and those projections are coming in short, um, significantly shorter on year one, given that 65% of the state has banned cannabis commerce at this juncture. So it's mostly just a matter of it's been taking longer to get that cannabis industry online? Very much so. You can contrast it with a state like Nevada, which legalized at the same time as us, had much more state and local synergy with regard to implementation. They launched before us, and then their revenue projections were 140% over projection for the first year, which concluded in July. So as we said from the outset, lots of threads coming together this year, many uh, different things to be following. Um, but I guess just to wrap things up, tell me a little bit about how you are seeing folks at the local level uh, getting engaged in this issue and responding. Really, democracy in action all across California this year, with every city and county deciding, okay, we want a legalization, but what does that mean? Do we want a dispensary in our backyard? Do we want a farm here? Do we want a lab here? What have you? We've seen a huge turnout and engagement of younger people who care about this issue to their local city councils and their county board of supervisors. And it's been really shocking to a lot of the old guard that sat on those boards. So I think a, a place like South Lake Tahoe, where we had a medical marijuana dispensary operator named Cody Base 
who spent the last five, seven years embattled with the city council over his right to stay open. Cody Bass just has a just took a seat on the city council in South Lake Tahoe during this election. He was part of a sweep of new um, people elected to South Lake Tahoe City Council that are younger, and they displaced three older incumbents. We're seeing cannabis people and their allies start to engage like never before and run referendums to set local policy or take on county seats and city seats. And that, to me, you know, echoes charges that are being calls. You know, being made nationwide to if you if you want to change politics, if you want to, you know, affect the arc of the moral universe, you need to get involved. And often all politics is local. And so we've seen more local engagement on this issue than ever before in California. And it's been really messy. There's been good decisions and there's been bad decisions. But I'm heartened because the whole thing has been a seventh grade textbook lesson in civics. You are listening to In-Depth on KCBS, and this week, we're discussing how California's cannabis industry is faring one year into legalization. That was David Downs, the California bureau chief for Leafly.com. Up next, we're going to turn our attention instead to the future of the industry. And as luck would have it, there is a guy who wrote a whole book on the subject. I'm talking about Ryan Stoa. He's an associate professor of law at Concordia University School of Law in Boise, Idaho, who studies marijuana agriculture. His new book, Craft Weed, Family Farming and the Future of the Marijuana Industry, posits that the future of that marijuana industry might just look a little bit like the high-end wine industry. When I spoke with him, he told me that there are in fact a few different paths that the agriculture marijuana industry might take as legalization proceeds. On the one hand, you might see kind of this big marijuana future. Um, and in my book, I talk about the sort of big marijuana prophecy that a lot of people are predicting doom and gloom and the inevitability that a few large, well-funded corporate interests are inevitably going to come into the cannabis agriculture space uh, with 10,000-acre farms and flood the market with cheap, generic marijuana, driving small-scale family farmers and the artisanal products um, out of business and out of the marketplace. And on the other hand, you have a vision of marijuana agriculture that is driven by, you know, tens of thousands of small-scale farmers, family farms in rural communities um, that are growing artisanal craft products meticulously and are doing so relatively sustainably. And so at this point, it's not clear which direction the marijuana agriculture industry will go. I would add that in my view and what I sort of conclude in my book is that I think what's most likely is that we'll have sort of a third vision in which both of these models coexist. I think it is likely that there will be a sort of cheaper, low-cost marijuana, a generic variety or strain, if you will, that's provided um, to the public, while at the same time, um, local farmers or family farmers can produce artisanal products that cater to more of a connoisseur market. So much the same way that craft beers can thrive in the beer industry right alongside those macro brews. 
So let's go back to this uh, potential image for a more crafty sort of marijuana industry. One of the proposals that you raise in your book is uh, what you call a marijuana appellation system. The idea there, as uh, as I'm kind of reading between the lines, is something sort of similar to like Champagne, where the only way that you can call it Champagne is if it's really from the province of Champagne. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. It's modeled after the wine industry, um, but appellations can be applied to any number of agricultural products products, cheeses, uh, meats, uh, olive oils, etc. Um, really what you're doing is protecting the name of a place that produces an agricultural product. Uh, so in the wine industry, if you're drinking a bottle of wine that says Napa Valley on the label, you can be reasonably confident uh, that it was actually that it actually comes from grapes grown in Napa Valley. Uh, and you can be confident of that because we have government regulators that ensure that that's the case, that there are rules around um, the agricultural products and where they come from if you want to use that geographic marker on your label. Um, this has a number of different benefits, regardless of which agricultural product we're talking about. Uh, for one thing, it helps the producers themselves because it helps diversify the marketplace. So, you know, in thinking about this big marijuana prophecy or this fear that there's going to be a takeover because one farm will produce all this cheap generic marijuana, if you have an Appalachian system that's protecting farming regions all over the country, you no longer have a generic marijuana. You have instead thousands of different strains grown in thousands of different farming regions, really diversifying the marketplace and providing unique products. And that helps protect a lot of these farming communities. So if you think about, for example, Humboldt County, California, which has a pretty strong reputation for producing quality marijuana products um, developed over decades, really, um, it would be unfortunate if uh, you know, a farmer in Missouri growing in their basement could label their marijuana Humboldt County um, and get away with the reputation that Humboldt County farmers have been developing over time. Instead, an Appalachian system would ensure that that designation of origin is certified only by folks producing in Humboldt County. So just so we can wrap our head around what this would mean, what kind of variety are we talking about when we're talking about different, all these different kinds of areas that are growing different kinds of uh, cannabis plants? Is there really that much variety in terms of uh, the plant itself and the product that it makes? Well, there's an incredible amount of variety um, in marijuana genetics and the various strains that are being grown. We already have a database of hundreds of uh, different strains that we know about. And the marijuana plant, because it has uh, a male species and a female species, uh, can be bred to produce hybrids of virtually any strain that is already in existence. So really the the possibilities are almost endless in this regard. Um, in addition to that, there's you know one of the justifications for uh, an Appalachian system in the wine industry is this idea that wine has a terroir, which just means that it exhibits the characteristics of the region it was grown in. So a connoisseur can sip on a wine from the Burgundy region in France and identify uh, the characteristics of Burgundy. It can identify the soil or the climate, um, the precipitation that year even. Um, and it's not clear if marijuana has a terroir or not, but there's some evidence 
that it might. Researchers at Portland State University um, have identified early signs of terroir in marijuana plants. In other words, they may be exhibiting characteristics of the regions they were grown in. And these facts lend themselves to uh, an industry model that is more artisanal in nature, right? We have more diversity of choice. We have more options on the marketplace. It further erodes the idea that there is one single generic marijuana product. Uh, There are many different strains, and they can be grown in many different regions. And let's speak to those listeners that maybe are somewhere between indifferent about marijuana to, you know, folks, certainly there are still some out there that are opposed to its legalization and adoption in California. Why would folks in that category necessarily care about the health of the marijuana industry? What what are the broader implications for the trajectory that this industry is on? Well, I think, you know, as legalization continues, we should be thinking about the kind of industry that we want it to be. Um, my book does not take a stance on the legalization issue per se. What I'm suggesting is legalization is occurring. There are now 33 states that legalize at least medicinal use of marijuana. Uh, According to my population estimates, at this point, two-thirds of the country lives in a state where at least medicinal use is legal. And so my question is, if this is going to happen, what should it look like? What do we want it to be? Do we want it to be dominated by a few large farms, or do we want it and the benefits of it to be spread more broadly? Do we want to utilize it in a way that revitalizes family farms and provides economic development in our rural communities? There are ways in which this can be set up to make sure that it's environmentally sustainable. So even if you're not a marijuana consumer, you might be interested in how this industry gets set up from an agricultural point of view. You know, we like to decry the state of affairs Uh, in our economy and in our politics. And here we have a really unique opportunity to help push along an industry and form it into the industry we want it to be right now instead of waiting until it's something we don't like and reforming it from there. And making sure that those smaller farmers have a place in this industry that you you would say that that would make for a healthier future here? I think it would. You know, as the as legalization continues, uh, you know, we've seen more and more farmers of more traditional crops start to think about incorporating marijuana into their crop portfolio. Um, traditionally, you know, farmers have been farming you know, non-marijuana crops because they've been illegal and marijuana farmers really only farm marijuana. Uh, And that's starting to change. Uh, You're seeing some traditional farmers look at marijuana as a way to possibly help make ends meet. And I think there's a real strong possibility, given how much money we're talking about in the marijuana industry, for marijuana farming, if the benefits are spread wide and for family farming to be promoted, to help revitalize the American family farm and promote economic development in our rural communities. Uh, Is California better positioned for some of the uh, craft growing that you're talking about than other localities? Yeah, it certainly is. I think what California's advantage um, is in this realm is the fact that it already has thousands of small-scale marijuana farmers. Uh, A few years ago, the state estimated that it had about 50,000 marijuana farms in the state of California. 
compare that to about 3,000 wineries, and you see that the marketplace or the, the farming scene is already dominated by family farmers. And I think you're seeing in many of these areas, especially in, in Northern California and the Emerald Triangle of Humboldt, Mendocino, and Trinity Counties, those farmers are organizing and advocating for family farmers and small-scale farming rights. Um, you don't have as much of a culture in other states of that small-scale farming, but I think one of the sort of perverse advantages of the federal prohibition is that by prohibiting interstate commerce of marijuana products, you're forcing states to grow their marijuana domestically, which is therefore creating all these production centers all across the country um, that I think will form a really strong base for a diversified farming scene once federal prohibition is lifted. And once again, we were speaking there to Professor Ryan Stoa. His new book, Craft Weed, Family Farming, and the Future of the Marijuana Industry is out now. This has been In-Depth on KCBS. Tune in again next week as we turn our attention to some of the social consequences of marijuana legalization in California. I am Keith Manconi, and I'll see you then. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for All News 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.